This message is brought to you by Heartland Family Fellowships. Hi, my name is Steve Fenney, and I will be your speaker today. We thank you for listening in on our podcast and hope that the Lord does bless you as you listen today. Okay, we want to welcome our online listeners. I know that we have some people joining us from Phoenix. There's a uh, new podcast that is joining us from Pakistan this morning. And so whoever it is that is listening through our online messages, we welcome you this morning. We have been going through a series on uh, brokenness, and we've been calling it the art, the lost art of brokenness. And today's message is called The Spiritual Secrets of a Broken Life. Now, most of us spend our entire lives doing things, taking things, praying things to stop brokenness. Seriously, we live in a pain rejection society where we take pills, we go to counselors, we do whatever it is that we got to do to avoid pain instead of doing what the Bible talks about, learning to embrace it. And so that is a very, very, very rare teaching that you hear today. Mostly we hear today how to stop the bad things that are happening to us. Last week we talked about a story that we're going to be talking about for the next seven or eight weeks called Turkeys and Eagles. And Janie is going to be reading to the children part one of our story on turkeys and eagles. So kids, listen very, very carefully to part one of our story of turkeys and eagles. Sure. Okay, so an eerie is a nest. Uh, Jane and I are going to Glen Erie Castle, uh, even though we were just told that it's completely charred all, all around the property, but we're still going to keep our... Uh, our scheduled appointment to go to Glen Erie in Colorado. And uh, in Glen Erie, there is a, uh, an eerie, Glen Erie, a nest, an eagle's nest, that is up on the cliff that they're estimating is about 150 years old. And eagles come to that eerie every single uh, birthing year. And um, it's really what made that whole little canyon uh, famous initially. And so we have a brand new family that has built an Erie. And uh, as most new parents, they get caught up in the busyness of the activity or the reality that is around them, and they ignore their children, and they simply let someone else raise their kids. And that's the story we're beginning to enter with the story of the turkeys and the eagles. Janie just made the parallel on how a lot of Christians become born again and the church kind of neglects them and doesn't train them up in the church and teach them how to live within the church effectively. So they usually leave home to go find someone, usually themselves, to train themselves up. So that's kind of life around us. And this is the beginning of the story, and we're going to find out what happened to these two little, these little eaglets to see if they survived that fall and to see what happens 
with these little eaglets if they did survive. This is our attitude of the week. Our attitude of the week is arrogant people or people with pride focus on the failures of others and can readily point out their weaknesses while being blind to their own. That is a great definition. It's actually one of the 40 definitions we'll be using over the next several months. But that is a great definition, starting definition, of an arrogant person, which I am quick to raise my hand to say have suffered with most of my life. I have been very quick to pick out the flaws in other people and the flaws in things that I see, whether it's a sports car or whether it's a person I'm counseling. And it's arrogance. Anytime we take our mind and our eyes and we put it upon a flaw externally that is outside of ourselves, arrogance begins to settle in. Some of the most arrogant people in the world today are the quiet ones because they tend to sit back and judge others but oftentimes don't say anything. So this is a very critical stepping stone we need to carefully review as we go through this series. Now, humble people on the other hand, humble uh, people of humility and brokenness are more aware of their own spiritual and emotional weaknesses before that of others. So here's how it would work. If I meet someone and I notice a flaw on their body, their hair, their, their voice inflection, how they say something, whatever. If I am quick to go, you know, I do that once in a while, or I do that all the time, or I am subject to that, or, you know, I have some of my own flaws. What happens is you stop going into this and you begin living out humility. In other words, that little flaw doesn't seem to matter anymore. So then the question comes, well, what does matter? If picking out flaws in people doesn't matter anymore, well, what does matter? The relationship. You cannot have relationship with a microscope in your hand. You can't do it. You're going to end up an independent, lonely person. If you've got a microscope in your hand and you're constantly combing over the lives of others, you're going to end up a very lonely person. Because no one appreciates being around someone who's constantly finding flaws. Now, we just lost our connection. So here's our little likeness unto death statement. If Jesus truly is our example in this brokenness and humble life, we need to understand the principle in which he is rooted and in which we find the common ground in which we stand in it should be in and with him. Thank you for picking up that earlier. And in which our likeness to him in his sufferings. So, we, once you become born again, I wish I had my envelopes here. I, I, it's just a great way to communicate this principle. If I take an envelope and write on the outside of that envelope, me or you. And once you become a Christian, you ask Jesus Christ into your life, 
you can take that envelope, me, and put it inside another envelope in Christ, and that's Jesus. Then, we're not done. Then Jesus is literally placed in us. Because he's omnipresent. So he actually gets in the little envelope and becomes a little less than human. Which is the definition of humility, if you remember, from last week. So he gets in our envelopes and we get in his envelope. And it says in Colossians 3 that Christ is then hidden in God. So now we take the Jesus envelope and put it in God's envelope. And you think that the enemy can get at you? That's too many ends. We are well protected. So then why do we run around acting like turkeys when we're eagles? We're in Christ. We're of Christ. We're around Christ. Christ is around us. Why do we act like turkeys? Well, that's what we got to talk about. Here's our verse in Romans 6.5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. You know, Jesus was able to walk up to Doubting Thomas and he said, uh, you know, pulls his robe up. Go ahead. Put your hand in my side. You see, Thomas was an actual very faithful and turns out that Thomas, Doubting Thomas, is the founder of India. For those of you who know geographical history. He is, uh, Thomas is a very, very holy name in India, in fact. So a lot of the descendants of his ministry uh, really is what founded India today. And so when you talk like this to an Indian, which I have quite a few friends in India, uh, they know exactly what you're talking about. They understand the power of words and the power of generations and how Christ preserves a generation, preserves a culture through um, a Bible disciple like Thomas. Now, Thomas was a doubter, always questioning the facts. Jesus knew it. He didn't go up to Thomas and have this doubting truth encounter. He just said, go ahead. I know what you're thinking. Go, go ahead, put your hand in my side. Did he? Yes, he did. Should we reject doubting Thomas because he always questioned the facts of Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. It made him a solid believer in the end. How about Peter, who forsaked the Lord three times? Should we have thrown Peter aside and not classified him a dynamic disciple? Of course, the Catholic Church claims he's their father. And Rome claims that he is the father of that land. Is he? Well, I don't know. I kind of doubt it, but that's how church history works. The fact is, no, God didn't push Peter aside, Jesus just simply said, wait it out. You will discover your own lies, your own doubts are wrong, and you will discover I'm telling you the truth, that the word of God is absolute truth. That's how it works. 
So if you're doubting here today about anything of the Word of God, it's okay. There's no reason to get the microscope out and say, you failure, you're, you're doubting God in these, these scriptures. It's just going to make you stronger in the end. It's a part of your heritage. And a lot of people over-question what doesn't need to be questioned that have already had answers applied to it. You know, I hear Christians all the time praying to God, asking Him if they should, you know, go someplace or divorce someone or leave that friendship or whatever the case may be. They're praying, asking for God's holy will. And when you talk to them, they say, well, I'm talking to the Lord about that right now. And I'm praying that he shows me what to do. And I go, okay, that's interesting. He already showed you 2,000 years ago what to do with that kind of situation. You see, what the person's actually saying is I'm not ready to embrace the truth yet. That's what they're saying. That's what Doubting Thomas was saying. I am not ready to accept the fact that you're, you were resurrected. Now you want me to share in this resurrection. I'd rather remain doubting, thank you. And Jesus was like, it's okay. Put your hand in my side, Peter. Thomas, John, whoever's doubting, go ahead. It's true. Why did Jesus go to 40 different cities in 40 days? Some believe it was 20-some, but I believe it was probably 40 locations in 40 days. After he was resurrected. So he could do this. Go ahead. Put your hand on my side. I, I am resurrected. And you know what? Many doubters drop their beliefs and join God in his belief. Because they saw the wounds. See, people like to see to believe. Jesus wanted them to believe to see. But he's okay with people who want to see to believe. So he says, I'll give you guys a few miracles. I've been in countries that are huge on miracles. I've been in meetings where they wanted me to perform a miracle. And I'm like, because that's how they believe in some countries. And God goes, it's okay. It's okay, Steve. Because doubters are solid people. They've got good minds. They're thinking. They're thinking things through. So when they truly convert on a topic, on an issue, they're just flat out immovable. Okay, here's brokenness. Broken for two primary principles. Number one, we are called to be broken and humbled before God and man. Not just God, but also our neighbor. If humility and brokenness is to be your joy, my joy, we must first see that it is not only the beating tool of sin, but apart from all sin, humility and brokenness is being placed on us by Christ like the morning close of dawn. The morning close of dawn is a Hebrew word picture. You get up in the morning, and it's what Americans call a bathrobe. 
And the bathrobe, like many other things in America, if you chase them back into history, you actually find biblical history behind some of this stuff. And a bathrobe is one of them. When you get up in the morning, you would put on your, your morning robe. You would be clothed with this morning robe. And here it's being said to us that sin not only beats on us to produce brokenness, but to produce the humility, you need to put it on like a robe. Now that's a concept that we'll preach, but it's also a concept that I'm told is rarely preached. People focus on the sin beating them apart, and they take pills, they go to 12-step groups, they do all kinds of stuff to avoid sin beating them up. But see, the brokenness has to occur to be able to embrace humility. And you can't have humility unless you put on that robe of brokenness. Does that make sense? It's very, very important. So the verses 6, I mean 8 through 9 of Romans 6, it says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. I believe that. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, I believe that, is never to die again. Why do we keep crucifying Jesus? There's even a church out there that keeps him on the cross and puts him at the front of the church. We don't need to kill him anymore. It's done. It's finished. He's not on the cross. And that's what this verse is telling us. Why are you trying to kill me over and over again? Death no longer is master over him. That him is obviously Jesus. So when you use death talk with Jesus, he's, um, he's, not, he's not with you. But when you use life talk with Jesus, he is with you. Did you know that Jesus found his glory in taking the form of a servant in order to be beaten by sin to discover the blessedness in brokenness and humility? I know it's easy for you and I to think that Jesus actually was humble and obedient because he was the son of God. Because God has the power to be humble. There is nothing humble about God. And you will learn what I'm saying more and more the more you discover who God really is. God does not make himself lesser than man. So when people say God's humble and whatever, they turn him into kind of a mushy God. Love, 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 love. Mushy, 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 mushy. That's Jesus became less than man. Humble. God bows to nobody. There is no humility in God. You need to understand that. And that is a solid biblical statement. There is humility in Jesus Christ. Who is God, by the way? So are there humble elements and characteristics of God? Of course there are. But humility is birth through Christ. 
He became a little less than man, got beaten up by sin, broken, and through his brokenness, he learned to be obedient. What's that verse? You guys remember? Through his sufferings, he learned to be obedient. Jesus needs to learn to be obedient? That would be yes. So if Jesus needed to learn to be obedient through his suffering, shouldn't we not take pills to avoid it? We should actually learn to be obedient by putting on that robe of brokenness. And that's, that's the Jesus we follow. And do you know, I mean, in 30 plus years of counseling people and helping people, I've discovered something rather profound and embarrassing about Christians. Non-Christians, I don't have a problem with, honestly. If they act arrogant, if they act rude, if they act whatever, I just don't have a problem with it. But when Christians act like this, I have a problem with it. When they actually demand better treatment than Jesus Christ. I have a problem with that. When they rewrite a verse that says, I deserve to be happy. I deserve to be financially better. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. And Jesus is saying, man, I didn't even get that. Yeah! So, the evidence of a faithful servant who has embraced humility and brokenness is he, she recognizes their position and finds a real pleasure in supplying the wants of the master of their guests. Now what that means, if you can imagine Jesus being at a party, he's the master of all, and he's more interested in the guest. He's more interested in making sure there's enough wine, if you remember the story. They ran out of wine. Well, back then, when you had a festival, or when you had a wedding feast, or a birthday party, you wanted to make sure that the guest always had enough, and they went away satisfied. And that's the way Jesus is with us. But if you're not broken and humble... Your first thought is not to give more of yourself. Your first thought is to protect yourself from giving, 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 and giving. So people who stop giving their tithes and offering, that's not money. That is your volunteer time. That is your, you know, giving a flower to your neighbor because it grew on your bush. That It's whatever. When you stop giving you're going to be taking from somewhere. When the water's not flowing out of the faucet, it is going to rust on the inside. But if you keep the water flowing from the faucet, the faucet will never rust. So when we see that humility and brokenness is something infinitely deeper than repentance, now think about that, Humility and brokenness is even more important than repenting to God with your sins. Do you know how many people run around repenting their sins so they can feel better to go on with their day? It is 
valueless to God. But if repentance is birthed through brokenness and humility, then that repentance will change your life. But if you're repenting just to get rid of a guilt feeling, forget it. I'm, you know, I, I don't mean to de, detract you from repenting, but forget it. Let the sin beat you up and break you so that you can put on the robe of brokenness so you can be a humble person and say, God, I was wrong for doing that and what it has done in our relationship. And there will be transformation in your life. Guaranteed. So it is deeper than repentance. And we need to accept it as our role and function in the life of Jesus. We shall begin to learn that it is our true nature and that no proof and that to prove it in being servants is the highest fulfillment of our journey. So I want to prove to those who are watching me, love me, don't love me, I want to prove to them this truth. And the way to prove to someone who you really are is to beat on them. See how they're going to act. I hate to say it, but it's true. If you get all self-wallowed and selfish and get angry back or throw something or whatever, you're showing what's inside you when you're under rejection. But if you're giving them love and life when you're being rejected, turning the other cheek, you're showing them there's a life inside you that's beyond you. You see? Because I can't do that. If you slap me, I'm going to want to hit you back. That's Steve Finney. But if you slap me and I turn the other cheek, that's proof. That's proof that someone else is in me. That is the real me. And that is my relationship with Jesus Christ. Sound too deep? It's as about as deep as a puddle in your backyard. Christianity is that deep. It's simple. It's just simple. We think it's complicated because we think too much like Thomas. Thomas just had to learn throughout his life as a Christian not to think so much. Just to let Christ's mind in him do the thinking through him. And he did learn that, by the way. Ask anyone who knows their Indian history. That was his big message in India. Kick back. Let Christ do it. That should be all of our message, not just Thomas's. Brokenness and humility is not proven or esteemed in Phariseeism or service, but rather their roots shoot from the indispensable condition of grace and through honest and real fellowship with Christ in you if you're a born-again Christian, and in me. This is critical. Phariseeism means to work, to be loved. That's all it is. That's simple Hebrew. Go complicate it with writing books about Phariseeism and, and spiritualism and, 
and hyper uh, legalism. Go do your research and add to it if you want, but that's how simple it is. It's to work to get love. So in other words, I'm going to give to Jane so that she will give to me. That's Phariseeism. That's those guys wearing their morning robes all day long. You know who I'm talking about. You've seen the movies. You've seen the pictures drawn of them. They wear their robes all day long. Their morning robes of glory. Because they do to get. And that's Phariseeism. I serve in the church so that I am noticed. That's Phariseeism. When you serve and no one else knows you're serving... Now you're into the real stuff. That's real life. No one knows but God himself. So if you are doing things that people notice, because you have to serve people when there's people around, and they give you a compliment, please don't do this. Oh, well, the Lord thy God is the one that should get all the credit for, for that. I love him. Hallelujah. Don't. It's embarrassing to the name of the Lord. It's not embarrassing to him because you can't embarrass him. But it's embarrassing to his name. If someone gives you a compliment for serving, say, you're welcome. I don't have to prove I'm not or I am a Christian. You just say, you're welcome. Because a humble person passes it on to the Lord in their mind. Not turn it into Phariseeism of some spiritual concept. It's just, you're welcome. Well, did the Lord do that through you? Did he tell you to do that? Yeah? It's keeping Christianity very, very simple. Those who claim to seek higher spirituality or holiness have been introduced to the brokenness and humility. The proof of true meekness and humility is found in those who allow Christ to walk, talk, breathe through their feeble existence. Some Christians actually believe once you become a Christian, it's all done. Christ comes in you and the rest is up to you. He's done his part. That will develop a very legalistic church. He breathes through you. Jesus puts the Holy Spirit in you upon salvation and then the Holy Spirit breathes through you. That's one of the actual Hebrew definitions of spirit, breath. He breathes. Some days he's breathing loudly because he's very active in your life that day. Other days his breathing is very secured. Kind of like our days. And so we need to let him walk through us, talk through us, and breathe through us. And the more broken you are, and the more humble you are, the more you will see that in someone's life. This is, in case you can't see the reference here, it's Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. And it talks about the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish. 
Now I know some Christians who talk about the losses in their life and they say, it's all rubbish anyway. Whether it's the death of a child, a spouse, parent, whether it is they lose their home, whether it is their car blew up and they don't have a vehicle, whatever it is. I know a few Christians, not many, that just say, well, it's all rubbish anyway. It's just stuff. But what really matters to me is that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. We know what that tells me as a Bible, as a Bible researcher, studier of the Word. In order to come to the belief that everything's rubbish, in order to come to understanding that that I may be found in Him, that people may look at me and say, well, He's in Christ, obviously. Because all the stuff that keeps happening to Him, He keeps coming back to Christ in you. In order for that truth to be seen in others, I have to go through loss, having stuff taken from me. See how I react. And if I go out and take my credit card and, and get, get another one of, of what I lost, that's not good evidence. Or if I go out and get a new friend real quick, go out and get a new husband real quick, go out and get a what? That's just not evidence of what Christ is saying here. Another powerful principle. Remember last week we did our our truth and faults test. This is number one from that test. And it is a good description of a Christian is a sinner saved by grace. True or false? What would you say, honey? True or false? And there's even songs written about this one. True? False? Well, we got the two, so let's see what it is. The answer is... Absolutely no. I know. See, we got we got to look at why this is an absolutely no. It's nowhere in God's word is a Christian called a sinner saved by grace. That is not a good description of an indwelt Christian. And what do I mean by the term indwelt Christian? For most of you who have heard me preach a couple times know that I don't use the term Christian anymore. I use the term indwelt Christian. Because Mormons believe they're Christians. Uh, a lot of religious types believe they're Christians. An American believes they're Christian. So indwelt Christian means what? Indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So... That is not a good description of an indwelt Christian. In fact, such a label might trap the believer in their identity before salvation. When you were in and of yourself, you were called a sinner. That doesn't mean you choose to sin. That means you are one. You can't do anything but sin if you don't have Christ. So it's a label of a condition and a position. So once you become an indwelt Christian, 
You're not a sinner anymore. Truest statement. A good Christian is good because Christ is good within them. And a Christian is a saint saved by grace from, the be from being a sinner. So now we're, now we're saints. No, you don't have to be canonized to be a saint. You don't have to die first and go get canonized. You are a saint because God took you from being a sinner to being a child of God, and a child of God is a saint. So you are a saint who is saved by grace and through grace from being a sinner. Someone answer this question. Can a Christian sin? Yes, we can. A saint chooses to sin. They're not sinning because they're a sinner. But a Christian can, into what Christian can choose to sin. Act like an unsaved person. Now, here's our profile of man. You'll be seeing this every week for a while. You can be, this is the life process. Some people go through, they, get, they are born, they go through their childhood, they get saved, and they walk a straight path. They're true Christians. And then they embrace not I but Christ, and they keep walking. I've met a couple of people like that, but not many. There's others that physically get born, of course. They go through their childhood or whatever. And all of a sudden, they decide, forget all this Jesus Christ business. So they're unsaved, and they know it. They're called atheist, or agnostic, or another 300 titles you can give them. They just don't care. Just, they're like, I know it. Don't preach to me. So that's that group. They can still be brought back to the cross, even at 89 years of age. So when someone is doubting in their 82 years of age and they've been living like that for 82 years, I know Jesus is just going to go, go ahead, go ahead, Bob. But I'm, I'm, I'm 89 now. Isn't it a little too late? No. Go ahead. Put your hand on my side. 89 years old. Then there's the type that become born again very early on. They walk through life and rejection's hitting them. They go through some loss, some more loss, and some more loss. And they get tired of being a Christian. So they decide to drop out of the picture for a while. They're a true Christian, but walking after, not in, after the flesh. They're just like, been there, done that. I believe in Jesus. I Believe me, I am not going to offend God. But I'm tired of you Christians. I'm just tired of you. So, they go in hiding for a few years. What's going to happen? Go ahead. Yeah, but I've been rejecting you, God, for you know 30 years, and I got saved at 7, but go ahead. He doesn't reject you. He embraces you. 
Then there's the type, this is the worst, I'm afraid, and I deal with them all the time with my worldview commentary stuff I do. You come along, and they get right up to the face of the cross. They literally have splinters in their nose because they're rubbing their face on the face of the cross of Jesus Christ. But they won't get saved. They'll talk about it, pray about it, act like it, smell it, taste it, but they won't receive it. These people think they're saved because they grew up in the church. They had a name on the pew. These people are what the Bible calls the church of Laodicea. They're lukewarm. They think they're saved, but they're as dead as a doorknob. But they think they're born again. They think they're saved, but they're emergent. They're lukewarm. So whenever you hear the term nowadays, emergent, it is a modern word that we writers are using for the term lukewarm, or Laodicean, which is one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So, these lukewarm saved people still have to be brought back to the cross. And what does Jesus do to them? As emergent as they are, he waits till sin beats the living daylights out of them. So he can go, go ahead! Go ahead, put your hand in my side. But I'm embarrassed. I thought I was a Christian. Go ahead. You can't become born again till you put my, your hand in me. Till you're in Christ and I am in you. That's what a true Christian is. And that can only happen through the cross at whatever point you embrace it. That's how simple this is. See, you know what? I get upset once in a while at emergent Laodicean people because they're usually arrogant. But then I go, hmm, have I been there? Okay. God reminds me that arrogance always fills the cup when he does not. It's that simple. So the emergent church might be filled with arrogant people who think they're saved, but I always got to be available for him to bring them to Jesus and say, now watch, he's going to pull his robe up. Stay there. That's leading someone to Christ. And then he opens his robe and says, go ahead, put your hand in my side. People are emergent because they don't like the restrictions of their husband. Jesus is a husband, as you know, once you become born again. And they don't like his restrictions, so they form their own kind of Jesus. Their own kind of husband. And that's how it works. Comments or questions? Thank you for joining us today. Heartland Family Fellowship is a local church plant here in Sterling, Kansas. Our fellowship includes the family and all levels of worship. Our mission is to bring families back together spiritually, relationally, and physically. Many people ask us, what does that really mean, or how does it benefit them? Well, it means that you can bring your entire family to any of Heartland's events, and we will work to keep the focus on God, Jesus Christ, and the body of Christ without dividing up the family at the front door. 
If you're interested in learning more about our fellowship or other family-integrated fellowships, please log on to our website. That is www.heartlandfellowship.org. We thank you for joining us. Get yourself in a bind, lose a shirt off your back. Need a floor, need a couch, need a bus fare.